At Plymouth Plantation, we strive to create powerful personal encounters with history built on thorough research about the Wampanoag people and the English community of the 1600s. But how can we know that the sources we're using and the stories we're telling are as accurate as possible? What do we do when primary sources tell us different stories? Can a primary source be wrong? I'm Hilary Goodnow, and you're listening to Voices from the Past, the Plymouth Plantation Podcast. To find out more about how public historians and scholars engage primary source materials, I spoke with Richard Pickering about one set of conflicting narratives describing the Pilgrims' first winter in New England. We talked about where the stories came from, when they came from, why they became so popular, and discussed how we can bring these different accounts from across the 17th century together to better understand the past. By the way, this interview was recorded in February 2016, so we apologize for the background noise, especially the howling wind and rain, but it seemed to add a certain weather ambiance to the interview. Thanks for listening. Richard, can you tell us a little bit about the first winter here in Plymouth? There are so many stories about the arrival of Mayflower being November, how cold it was. What do we actually know about what happens in that, those first integral months? I can't imagine what it must have been like to have been here the first winter and to watch half the town die within the period of about two and a half months. And we have descriptions from Mort's Relation, which is the first pamphlet that Plymouth prints about itself in 1622. And we are told that on some days, two and three people a day were dying. And the governor in his chronicle of Plymouth Plantation says, at its very worst, there were only five, six, seven people who were well enough to take care of everyone else, to, to feed them, to clean up after them. And he says they were changing their loathsome clothes and that they were the only ones well enough to bury the dead. And what are some of the most common myths or misunderstandings of this first winter? You described quite a horrific scene. Uh, as the pilgrim history has gone on through the last 400 years almost, a lot of different kinds of stories have emerged about this first winter. There's such a desire for certainty. I think one of the newest trends is to, with very little emphasis, uh, excuse me, with very little evidence or medical evidence, say what the disease was that took them away. Hmm. And so you'll find that people are looking at Bradford's description and attempting to figure out, is it a pneumonia? What is it? And we just don't have the evidence to say with any certainty what took these people away. And that seems to be something that's part of pilgrim history is the desire to know. And in the lack of evidence, stories get created. This is one of those American legends that again and again, when there is a hole, a story is created to fill it. Can you give us an example of one of the stories that is brought in to fill a hole in the historical narrative? Well, I think one of the classics, and I grew up a Congregationalist, is that every November at church we got a little plastic bag with five kernels of corn in it, and the story that at their very worst 
the pilgrims were doled out five kernels of corn to live on each day. And it does not come from any 17th century source. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's one of those stories that arises when the Bradford manuscript goes missing, when there's no access to Mort's relation. And if you look at some of the writings about early Plymouth and hunger here, and if you look at some of the writings about Wessagusset, the colony that was founded about 30 miles to the north, they were actually down to one cup of meal a day at Wessagusset. And I'm actually wondering, did someone take a cup of meal and try to figure out how many people were in Plymouth and then divide it up and that's where the five kernels of corn story comes from is the division of one cup of Indian corn among the potential colonists that were here. The first time that story is told is 1820 and the description of the 200th anniversary dinner talks about entering a beautiful hall the cutlery and the silverware are gorgeous, the plates are ornate. It's just a sumptuous setting for this anniversary dinner. And next to each plate, there are five kernels of corn. And the man who first tells us this story says that everyone dining that night looked at these five mysterious and silent symbols and an elderly man stood and explained the story. And it's definitely a powerful story that evokes the challenges of settlement, but there is no written record of the story prior to the 1820 dinner. Why do you think it is that in 1820, in 1920, the, the pilgrim narrative is so symbolic, and you say the five kernels of corn are, are solemn symbols. But why is it, do you think, that it's the suffering, it's the starvation aspect of this story in the first winter that so captured the American imagination at these important anniversaries, more so than the first Thanksgiving, which didn't really become a symbol until the end of the 19th century and really in the 20th century? There's a level of heartbreak to Plymouth that you can't get from other colonies because of the depth of the record mm -hmm. and the fact that through Winslow's writing, through Bradford's writing, and all of the intense work of the genealogists at the Mayflower Society and other lineage societies and the New England Historic Genealogical Society, we can put faces, personalities, origins on those that were living and dying here. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we know they were families. There's something that folds in a greater level of emotion when they're not solitary men who have come for economic reasons and possibly only for a little time to make money and then return back to England once they're established. But the fact that you have families that are being divided and that we know children are left behind orphaned, there's, there's something touching about this story that the record elsewhere doesn't give us. One of the most dramatic stories that we hear accounted again and again, um, maybe one of those 
stories that was brought in later on to fill a hole in the narrative is the story of bodies being buried by night, which comes from Increase Mather's history of New England. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? It does not come from any Plymouth eyewitness source. And even the source that Increase Mather cites for burials by night does not contain evidence of burial by night. So we don't know really where Increase Mather got this story, but again, it's one of those dramatic stories of hiding the dead so that the native people who were watching Plymouth that first winter could not tell how many were dying. To be truthful, it doesn't make any sense, really, if we know that they are down to five, six, or seven people who are taking care of the rest and burying the dead. They are having to carry the dead a long distance um, to get to any place where they could be hiding because they are building, they are living in the middle of cleared Patuxet cornfields. So there's going to be a significant passage of land between any houses and the place where the burials are to occur. And if the native people were as watchful as Winslow and Bradford characterized them, they would have seen this. And I, I think also there's a perception in the way that story is told that they were trying to not only hide the decline in their numbers, but also hide this idea of settlement from the native people. And there's no evidence in Winslow or Bradford that they were trying to hide the fact that they were arriving at all. They were very declarative of their intent intentions and they they had the legal right to be there they had established it they had their patent they had no qualms about where they were settling right. with regards to the native people who were there so there's a sneaky element to the story that isn't evident when you read other primary source material right and when you look at reverend prince's chronology of early new england when he is accessing sources that are no longer extant. And so he gives us more details on who died on which day because the governor's pocketbook he was working from has since disappeared. But he also reports on all those times that native fires were seen and Captain Standish would take small companies out in an effort to establish conversation. And that's even as their numbers are declining, that they are continually trying to establish conversation and having no success. And Europeans had been traveling to North America, to Central America, for hundreds of years yes. at the time that Mayflower arrives in Plymouth. So the relationship between Europeans and indigenous people of North America was not as new as mythic interpretations of the pilgrim narrative would lead people to believe. Yes. Now one, you mentioned that Increase Mathers, he misquotes an earlier narrative. Uh, what is that earlier narrative? Uh, Phineas Pratt, who lived in Plymouth Colony for some years before going off to Massachusetts Bay Colony, when Phineas Pratt was an elderly man in the year 1662, he petitioned the general court of Massachusetts Bay Colony for an annuity. He was struggling financially. And one of the reasons he argued that he deserved the annuity was the contribution that he had made 
to the establishment of New England because he had been one of those young bachelors that came to New England under the aegis of Thomas Weston to establish Wessagusset, that competing colony 30 miles north of Plymouth. And when troubles arose between the colonists at Wessagusset and the native people surrounding them because the English were stealing corn continually and causing unrest, Phineas Pratt, as he suspects coming violence, runs through the woods from Wessagusset to Plymouth to carry the news to Plymouth that there may be trouble arising between the native people and the English there at Wessagusset and he believes Plymouth will also be endangered at the same moment. So he writes uh, what in original handwriting is six, if the listeners can imagine, paper that's a little taller than legal paper and a little wider than legal paper. He leaves either in his own hand or in the hands of a transcriber or transcribers because the handwriting seems to change or decline over the course of the six pages. He leaves his account of his time at Wessagusset and I believe confuses his memories mm -hmm. of things that happen at Plymouth with things that happen at Wessagusset. Um, also, he's not an eyewitness to the first winter. He does not arrive until February or March of 1622 when he comes with that company of men initially sent over by Weston. So what he writes about in regard to the first winter is not eyewitness. And he says in his narrative, we asked them where the rest of our friends were that came in the first ship. They said that God had taken them away by death and that before their second ship came, they were so distressed with sickness that they, fearing the savages would know it, had set up their sick men with their muskets upon their rests and their backs leaning against trees. And that's entirely possible that ha that happens at Wessagusset mm -hmm. because Wessagusset is without any government in the eyes of William Bradford. They immediately spin into chaos and thievery and we know that men were dying of starvation at Wessagusset. And there is no evidence that Phineas Pratt knew anyone aboard Mayflower. It's not as if he was in Leiden with that small, small core congregation that came over. We don't know if he's asking about the men who might have come in advance of him because regarding the arrival of men at Wessagusset, it is reported in two different places. One writer says two ships would come together. And then Robert Cushman, the colony's business factor, says three ships came. Mm -hmm. So the details on the earliest days of Wessagusset, it's very interesting that that same year um, that Phineas Pratt arrives in the colony, John Pory, who is the secretary for the Virginia Company, is also here visiting. And in the letter that he writes, he is so impressed with Plymouth, with its fortifications and with its healthful climate and with its civil order, that he reports that he's told no man, woman, or child has died within the year. 
But the more I think about that, the more I'm wondering if, if it was Bradford who told John Pory that. I wonder if he's not including the Wessagusset men in that count, because they arrive, many of them, very sick, and they remain at Plymouth until they are well, before going off to Wessagusset to work on the establishment of the new plantation. And I wonder if any of them passed but Bradford does not count them among their company, and whether that's what Phineas is actually asking about. And the first ship has been made out by many readers to be Mayflower. As opposed to the first ship sent by Thomas Weston to establish this rival company, now that he, who he had originally been the financial backer, the chief financial officer, really, for Plymouth, and when he abandons them and forms this rival company, he sends his men some 30 miles away, uh, still in an effort to try to make money off fishing in the New World. Exactly, because Bradford and Winslow are not loath to describe the vulnerability here that first mm -hmm. winter. And I know there has been a tendency to say the, the reason that this doesn't appear in Plymouth-specific sources is because it's too painful a memory. Nothing can be more painful than watching half a community die mm -hmm. and report it. So I suspect what's happening here is, as elsewhere in the early passages of the narrative, where Phineas Pratt is reporting on things he did not witness, there are also troubles factually. Um, some of his reporting out on the Pilgrim's experiences in Leiden, there are chronological errors within that reporting. He wasn't there. The, the state of the document also makes it very difficult to work with Phineas Pratt because the, the original document has tears in it, it has some holes in it, and in the mid-19th century, it was transcribed. And a tremendous job was done of transcription. But what I'd love for people to think about is if historians are only working with the transcription, a tear or a hole in the document is being suggested by ellipses, three little periods. And if you're only dealing with that, that now creates new sentence structures and may be creating new relationships that aren't there if you're looking at the actual handwritten document itself, can see its condition and can see the way it degrades over the course of the six pages, either if Phineas Pratt is writing this out all at one time because the last pages, the handwriting has clearly broken down in its clarity or whether he's dictating to one poor soul who's trying to keep up and over time becomes exhausted. Something else I'm curious about with the original document, how much does the motivation behind Pratt's desire to bring this narrative out, how much does that play into how historians are gonna engage with this as a source? Do we have to consider who he's speaking to and, and why he's writing this in the first place when we evaluate this source? Exactly, and it's something that we need to take into account with every source. When was its original production? How close is it to the events described? 
what was the motivation and how did this document come down to us over time? When you look at the other source material related to the first winter, there are questions. Bradford, when he wrote of Plymouth Plantation, was clearly writing for the ages and for a public readership. The history of Mort's relation, that first pamphlet they print in 1622, is extremely troubled because Robert Cushman, who was entrusted with a long chronicle describing the first year in Plymouth, was captured by French pirates and held as a hostage for two weeks. And in a deposition he gives to the English maritime courts, he said, all of the letters that I was carrying from Plymouth were opened and read. The long chronicle that I was carrying was read and found to be so entertaining, I was not allowed to retain it, and it was kept by the Marquis of the Island. So the document that we see as Mort's relation is a hodgepodge of what he was allowed to retain. And what I would argue is if you look at the second pamphlet printed by Plymouth Colony in 1624, Good News from New England, which was the production of Edward Winslow, that is one of the finest examples of controlling a message because he was having to explain to the merchants in England why there were first incidences of violence against native people in the region, why six to eight men died at the hands of Plymouth Colony, explain to them the circumstances they were living in with native communities subsequent to that incident in, in the spring of 1623. It is a masterful piece of public relations. Mort's relation is not and I would say it's because whatever that long chronicle was, which was probably carefully crafted so that the merchants would understand what had happened here, that was gone. And all that Robert Cushman was allowed to retain were portions of a journal, portions of descriptions of journeys, and private letters that he put into print without the permission of the writers. Do we know anything about that original Long Chronicle, where it went after Cushman was released? Uh, has anyone ever tracked it? No, that's one of the things that I would love for us to find. And I was doing a talk. I, I live almost out at the tip of Cape Cod. And one night, I was doing a talk at the Wellfleet Historical Society and spoke about the loss of this particular relation. After dinner, I'm out having dinner with my parents and a man comes over to the table and he said, uh, could I talk to you for a minute? I said, yes, sir. He said, I was just at your talk and I need to tell you something. I said, what is that? He said, I'm from that little island where Robert Cushman was taken. And this gentleman became so enamored at the possibility of this relation still being on his island that he started to look for it. And after about a year and a half, he determined in relationship with local archivists that it had probably been moved, if it still existed, it had probably been sent to Paris 
uh, when Napoleon tried to centralize all government activities and archives. Mm -hmm. The challenge is, how is it cataloged? So mm -hmm. for an American or certain British archivist, there are going to be names in this thing that are setting off bells of Standish and Bradford and Winslow and Brewster. But for French archivists, particularly working in the early 19th century, nothing is, is going to be setting off bells. So as Bradford was rediscovered in the 1850s, it's entirely possible now in a digital age and with an international effort, we could find a document that explodes our current understanding of what happened the first year. As historians work over time uh, in your studies of the Pilgrim narrative and moving forward towards our 400th anniversary in 2020, what are some of the big scholarly evolutions that you see brewing in the academy that are going to change the way we interpret the first winter here at Plymouth Plantation? Well, I think one of the things that I'm hoping to work with with academics is uh, a clearer understanding of the role that Mayflower Compact played within the colony and within American memory. Um, because I don't think we have a very clear understanding of the way the document functioned. And I have sometimes wondered whether the Mayflower Compact continues to be agreed to by later comers because the like taking the oath uh, essentially in, in a citizenship ceremony or when you go to work for a federal bureau that when people came in as particulars meaning we are going to live among this company but not necessarily be part of the mm -hmm. financial company that's sustaining it I wonder whether they were made to agree to the tenets of the compact because the merchants at one point, when there are these newcomers arriving, the merchants say to Governor Bradford, do not talk to them as a group. Talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And I almost wonder whether there is this effort to have them join into this constitutional setting because when they finally codify the laws in the next decade, Mayflower Compact is still there even though we are told historically it's been superseded by the Pierce patent. So I want to bring us back to where we started, which was with Increase Mather's narrative that talks about Pratt's narrative, misquotes Pratt's narrative, who is misrepresenting um, a story that was written in Plymouth by William Bradford, Edward Winslow. How can we as public historians evaluate primary sources? It, can a primary source be wrong? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, because our memories are very imprecise. One of the stories that I dearly love is Sir Walter Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh is confined in the Tower of London. He is using the time of his incarceration to write a history of the world. And there is one morning he's at work on his manuscript and he sees two men having an argument below his window. But he can't make out all of the content of their argument. He can see the way they're 
approaching each other physically and he can see their anger, but he cannot make out what they're saying. And that was the morning he abandoned his effort to write the history of the world because he said, if I can't understand what I'm seeing out my window, how can I understand this massive task of writing the history of the world? Because our understanding of others' experience is so partial and our memories can be so colored or they can become imprecise over time. That simple challenge of witnessing a crime, how often when someone is asked to describe what they've just seen at a crime scene, we learn it's imprecise because things happen so very quickly. So I think we need to always say primary sources have their strengths, but we also need to do as much research as possible to confirm what is asserted by those witnesses. Well, thanks for taking time to talk with us today, Richard, about the first winter and the Phineas Pratt narrative. And uh, we hope to have you again on the podcast soon. Thank you, Hillary. Or visit us online at Plymouth.org. The Plymouth Plantation Podcast is produced by the Museum Experience Group and Plymouth Plantation Incorporated. Our theme music was composed by John Previdini. Thanks for listening.